You're listening to San Antonio Public Library's podcast, Tuned In. This podcast is made possible through the generosity of the San Antonio Public Library Foundation. Our sound engineer is Dan Garcia. Show notes for this episode and other episodes can be found at guides.mysapl.org slash SAPL tuned in. Hello, everyone. This is Edward for the Tuned In Podcast team. We're back from a little hiatus, and today we're going to talk about Pride at Sapo. I have some guests here that are going to help us with the conversation. I have a very special guest from UTSA. Melissa, would you introduce yourself, please? Certainly. My name is Melissa Golke. I am the assistant archivist at UTSA Special Collections. I am a scholar of local LGBTQ history and have been writing and talking about local queer history for well over a decade. Awesome. Thank you so much. And the rest of the team, let's start off with Shannon. Hi there. I am Shannon Prukop. I'm a teen librarian over at the Carver Branch, and my pronouns are she, they. Hi, my name is Zachary Lambert. I am a teen librarian as well with the Schaefer Branch Library, and I use pronouns she, her. Hi, uh, I'm Michael Dunbar-Rodney. I'm an adult services librarian at the Cody Branch. Uh, My pronouns are he, him. And Dan is joining us behind the wheels still on the, what's that, the box, the box of magic. Thank you, Dan. So, Melissa, give us an overview, an insight of the queer history in San Antonio. Wow, that's uh, <laughs> just start a big from the ask. <laughs> just start from the beginning. Day one. <laughs> well, there is so much depth uh, to the city's queer history, and... When I go out and I, I talk to organizations and individuals and do presentations, they're truly astonished that I have been able to excavate queer history in the city going back to the early 1900s. And sometimes those finds are very serendipitous, which is tremendously exciting. For instance, as early as the early 1900s, we had uh, many female impersonators coming to venues in the city. They were on the vaudeville stage and just a a cadre of um, acts that were incredibly popular with patrons. It was something I totally didn't expect. While I was familiar with vaudeville, I was surprised at how popular female impersonation acts were. And uh, one of my favorites was in 1909, a performer named Zelda Bunker came to San Antonio and was performing at one of several of the vaudeville clubs. What's so interesting about Zelda is that he made the front page of the San Antonio Light. And it wasn't for his female impersonation act. He was known all over the country. Um, and he actually traveled to Europe and performed before the crowned head. So this was a very beloved performer. One day, Zeldo disappeared in 1909 from his rooms in uh, right on the periphery of what we are, call our red light district at the time. He was left his room wearing shirt sleeves and brandished brandishing a pistol. Goodness. That was the last time anyone saw of him. His friends were very concerned. So they went to his rooms on Durango Street and rifled through his things, and under his mattress, they found a stack of letters. 
They were addressed to his friends in the event of his disappearance. He was leaving things to people, but most interestingly about these letters, Zeldo explained why he was so upset. A man has broken his heart. The love of his life, the boy he had taken care of for so long, had left him. He was heartbroken. He said, you will never find me again because of him who has crushed me. My health is so bad. That's it. You're never going to see me again. So very, very dramatic mm. exit. These were published in the, the newspaper on the front page. Wow. It's clear, well, to me, I don't know how clear it was <laughs> at the time, Zelda's talking about a male lover. This is published, and there's no pushback against it or criticism. It's just simply, my God, we're concerned. Where is Zeldo? And how could this person have broken his heart? To me, that was quite a revelation in 1909 to have that make the front page of the newspaper. Melissa, can I ask you a question real quick? Yes. So dating back to the 1909, was there any pushback from the audience or from the citizens when they went to these vaudeville, vaudeville shows and saw the female impersonators? None. Okay. They were so popular. You can go back into the newspaper archives and you're going to see every day there are advertisements for theaters and um, starting in the 1900s and going all the way up through the 1930s and 40s, these are featured acts. They start out as individual performers, and then when you get into the 30s, uh, it's troops of uh, traveling female impersonators. And they're incredibly popular, and there are many facets to that popularity. Many of the consumers of vaudeville shows are upper-middle-class white women. They have the discretionary income to go and take in this form of entertainment. And they also take lessons about the popularity of certain acts. And they co-opt this facet of queer culture and use it in social events. We have, an, I'll, I'll be writing about this, I'm writing about this right now, as a matter of fact, an event of some of the the most elite members of San Antonio society in uh, 1918 performed a womanless wedding. All the female characters are perform bridal participants. Uh, wedding participants were affluent men in San Antonio dressed up as women. The bride was none other than our beloved architect, Atlee B. Ayers. I've just recently found out that Atlee Beers had an affinity for dressing in drag when he would go places, and we have photographs of him. So this womanless wedding is put on by women's social clubs to raise money for the war effort. They've voluntold their husbands. They're going to be part of this. And you have people like Harry Hertzberg plays the mother of the bride. As we found out over time, Harry Hertzberg was gay, probably maybe the only gay participant in that. That has opened up an, another chapter of history. So these little clues that you're able to excavate just blossom into wonderful vignettes 
about hidden history. I think those things really resonate with folks because it's the opposite of the narrative that we normally hear about San Antonio. Very true, very true. Mm -hmm. Melissa, I have a question for you. Um, I find it very interesting that there's some parallels with what is accepted in popular gay culture even now, which is when it's performance-based, it invites in maybe a segment of an audience that wouldn't typically be so pronounced in those spaces. So I, I find it interesting that this was such a popular thing going on back in the day for entertainment purposes, and then this one particular character was so revered by the public that after essentially coming out via this front page on a newspaper, people didn't turn their backs on him. I, I wonder how it was for the other performers in that time who maybe maybe some of them were straight, maybe some of them were gay, and that was their way to introduce themselves to a culture that wasn't accepted widely. Um, so I wonder, do you know of any other performers that may have had a coming out not similar but like just in general a coming out that were accepted or not accepted by the public that was consuming their performance oftentimes um, female impersonators including very very famous female impersonators like Julian Attange I believe his name is pronounced was adamant that he was heterosexual Although every aspect of his life really negated that claim. (laughs) (laughs) So some of the performers went to great lengths to say, you know, I'm I'm not a homosexual, Um, I'm married, wear straight regular clothes. Um, You don't don't hear a lot about that. That, as, as you move forward beyond the vaudeville era and you go into the 1930s, in San Antonio, the theater district, which is where the Aztec and the Majestic and at one time the Texas Theater were, all these little clubs and cabarets down on Houston Street featured female impersonation troops. And the shows were so, so popular it was a way to vicariously look into the world of gender transgressing in a safe way. And that was fine as long as it was viewed in the clubs. But God forbid those performers hit the streets in drag. That was a whole different thing. There was a troop of performers who we're staying in the hotel next to the cabaret and between the uh, cabaret and the hotel they went out in their outfits and a patron of the hotel complained and the seven performers were swept up and hauled off to jail and while in there they they were not too terribly upset about this they performed a show for the other inmates (laughs) (laughs) That's wonderful. So they made good use of their time. (laughs) Well, the the, the, the DAs, they could not find charges that would stick to keep these chaps, gals, in jail, and um, they let them go. With the 
premise being get out of town. Oh. Well, the girls didn't get out of town. They were incredibly popular. They knew they had a good thing, and they went on to perform. They got tossed in jail again on indecent <laughs> exposure and morals, violations, and whatever they could drum up. It supercharged people who wanted to see this play <laughs> oh, out in court. <laughs> Folks were excited. They get to see this drama play out in the courtroom. Well, unfortunately for those spectators, uh, the case was thrown out again. <laughs> and um, the court took a lot of flack. People showed up. They called in. They're like, why is this not happening? <laughs> so it's, you know, it's this two, two sides of a coin. You're great in the clubs because you have entertainment value. And yes, that has been true across the decades of queer performers in San Antonio and elsewhere. But if you step beyond that boundary, it's an entirely different thing. That does make me wonder because, you know, there's a, there's a history of performative humility and performative, um, you know, acts of saying something and meaning something different. Mm -hmm. You go back to medieval women writers and you see these books in the intros. They're like, oh, you know, care for my pathetic, pathetic little book, my sad little story. It's nothing, but read it if you want. I kind of wonder if there's an element of that with the, like, no, I'm definitely straight. See, I'm married. I did all of the right things. I kind of wonder if that is a wink and a nod, like, if it isn't sincere in some of their cases that they are absolutely saying that to say that they've said it, but then are just doing whatever they want behind the, the closed doors. I would say in Julian's case, that that was the case. Okay. Um, historians have, have looked at everything going on in his life his his mother was his manager and he was very flamboyant and you know just all the hallmarks of probably a gay man <laughs> so yes and i know that there were were others you'll look if you look at uh, souvenir programs we have one from i believe it's a 1945 performance at the gay paris a, a cabaret downtown all of the performers, the female impersonators, have Mr. in front of their names. Mr. Lucien. <laughs> Mr. Francis Blair. Mr. whichever other performer it was, with one exception. Hacha Hinton. Oh. Hacha. Hacha. <laughs> did not allow Mr. to be used in front of her name. Because she lived her life as a woman. That's wonderful. Oh, wow. And it said that she just simply forgot to tell people she was a man. <laughs> just, oh, it Love it. crossed your mind. Slipped. Just slipped. You know, yeah. it's one of those things. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a question. I feel like people listening to the podcast are, are going to want to answer also. Um, Julian was the gentleman who disappeared. Yes. Uh, Zeldo. Zeldo. Mm -hmm. Was he found? He was found. Oh, good. He showed up in Joplin, Missouri, at his sister's home. I believe he went off to a sanatorium for a while. Interesting factoid about Zeldo that I find so intriguing. In the uh, census for 1900 and uh, one was in Seattle, I believe the other in Missouri, his profess profession was listed as clairvoyant. Oh, and that's really? how he built himself oftentimes as a clairvoyant. And I found that kind of ironic since he didn't see the breakup. Coming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you never see them coming, though. <laughs> Poor guy. 
It's like in the age of TV psychics when people were like, well, why do you need me to tell you my phone number? I have a question as well. Um, so we've kind of moved forward into towards the 1940s. Um, and I, it's fascinating to know this history about San Antonio's, you know, the female impersonators and, and the shows. Um, I, I often feel that actors sometimes have like a little bit more leeway than, than most people. Um, so I, I know you've looked at this. I want to ask since we're headed towards that direction. Um, San Antonio has always been kind of a military town, especially, you know, around the world wars. So what did what did that look like in terms of queer life and queer culture for servicemen and women um, who were part of the queer family? How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> that good, huh? It is. It's it's a fascinating chapter. Um, the military did move to uh, police. Uh, Armed Forces personnel. And they were wise to what's going out, on out there in the clubs. And um, you know, that certainly there are homosexual hangouts, sites where homosexuals came together. And fortunately, um, I've been able to map those and just kind of see where folks are moving around, queer folks in the city. The military was very concerned about sexual interactions. Their primary reason was deviance, yes, deviant behavior, but venereal disease was rampant. It was rampant during the First World War and certainly during the Second World War. In the First World War, there were prophylactic stations in San Antonio's red light district But you move into the Second World War, and there's a real big push to just shut that down. What I've found through research, um, health department statistics, is that the um, high incidences of venereal disease weren't coming from prostitutes. They were coming from what a health report called casual pickups and friends. (laughs) So... I deduced, I think correctly, some might argue, but there are other historians who will back this up, that homosexual interactions were frequent and they were a problem. So the the military, through something called the May Act, which regulated social and sexual behavior, established a mechanism to control those behavior. It was called the off-limits list. (laughs) <laughs> and these were establishments, restaurants, clubs, taverns, saloon, houses of ill repute, body houses, private residences. These were on a list. <laughs> you I know it's you. bad if your home is yes. on the list. <laughs> yes. Well, there's a reason for that. I believe it. So they made this so they made a list of places where if you were looking for <laughs> yes. Right. Ah, this okay. works perfectly. <laughs> Exactly. The government facilitated the behavior it was trying to stamp out. That was the first thing you would do if you went to a new post is go and look look at the off-limits list because they were posted in the barracks. Of course. They were also posted outside the establishment. Very convenient. Yeah, Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. There's coded language on these lists. (laughs) 
where there's uh, venereal contacts, body houses, morals violations. Historians have found, they've done the legwork on this, that those were representative of queer spots where homosexuals were coming together, men and women. You have to be really careful if you're going to brave going into an off-limits place, make sure that you're in your civilian clothes. Interestingly, um, we found uh, someone who was taking pictures during the 60s took uh, pictures of the inside of a very popular gay club, and there is a man in military uniform in there. And um, I thought, wow, he's, you know, walking on, walking a fine line. She would be dishonorably discharged. Um, if you were found out. But these lists really are such a bounty for historians. Before we came across this 1945 list, which was in our archives in a file cabinet, we don't know where it came from, um, but it was put out by uh, an officer at Fort Sam. It helped me to identify the places where queers were coming together. Whereas before that list, I was really struggling to get the evidence. So the evidence is out there. And to answer <laughs> your question, it's it's a very um, interesting chapter in the city's <laughs> history that continues <laughs> on and on for several decades, all the way up through the 90s when the military was still trying to put bars off limits, including the bottom exchange. So... So do any of the places that are on that original list from the 40s still exist as they were? No. Do they exist building-wise as a different place? A few. Um, There's so much, especially within the last few years, redevelopment that it's a real challenge to find the extent building that once was a queer spot. One of the, uh, a space in San Antonio that during the 60s, I know I'm jumping forward a wee bit, that we definitively know was queer turf is in this little slice right above downtown, right uh, to the east of downtown on a street called Austin Street. If you drive on 281, you can see the tops of the old buildings there, these old brick buildings. One has two cupolas on it. That space in the 60s had a queer bar called the Acme Bar. There are photographs of the patrons in these bars. Great stuff. Unfortunately, the building got torn down for the interchange. However, there's one building still standing that was became in the 1980s, uh, a gallery run by two gay men, John Schoen and Dan Davenport, and that building still exists. Before that, it had a history of being part of the queer space around it. So what's, I think, fascinating about this space is, yes, we, we don't have those buildings, but taking people to that space and talking about the absence, what, what was here but is no longer here, What's super cool is I found an aerial photograph of that little corner of Austin Street for the 1960s, and you can see the buildings, and you can see the Acme, and it's kind of like this ghost from the past. I got real tingly when I saw it. 
Oh, wow. Really, really neat. That seems really cool. Yeah. I kind of wonder, because we've talked about female impersonators were intensely popular in San Antonio. Do you think that translated, this is getting into our next episode of talking about today, did that translate into the strong drag culture here? Is that kind of maybe setting the groundwork for that, I wonder? I think absolutely. Absolutely. There was such an intense foundation for drag. And, of course, the the wording that we use had changed from female impersonation into drag shows. But you get into the 60s and then, of course, 70s, and there are ads for drag shows. And there are gossip columnists in San Antonio who write often in very pejorative language about these places. But um, one of the really unique places was down in Von Orme, which is just south of town, in an old steel building off of a farm-to-market road, some of the most amazing drag shows, the pictures that I have ever seen. They're in a, a personal collection here in San Antonio. You would think that the magnificent of these dra- of these drag divas is just, where are we? New York, San Francisco? No, we're in Von Orme. Country queers. <laughs> Country queers. <laughs> <laughs> the place is packed. Love that. I talked to one of the drag queens, Carlos with a K, who's one of San Antonio's most eccentrics. <laughs> and he recalls running across the farm to market road in his heels oh, gosh. to get to the show on time. So you just have to love those little tidbits. And there were more bars in the country, little queer spots out by Halotus, and just tucked away in these these rural towns because you're off the the radar, Mm -hmm. essentially. And the militaries sometimes would show up, but queers had options for safe spaces. Yeah, that's Uh, really great. Um, I... Shannon and I, as teen services librarians, we talk often about uh, the queer teens that either come to programs or access services in different ways, not not knowing about that history and knowing, feeling like, you know, they may be the first to, like, it, it feels very new for them and it even scary, but hearing the history, even for someone like myself, As a queer person, I went to the library to see myself represented, you know, um, prior to coming out to anyone. Um, But that was always in secrecy, right? I never knew, like, these tidbits of history. And it's very fascinating to me now as someone who's in my mid-30s to look back and think about how it might have changed my life if I knew this stuff as a teenager. Um, And so, I, yeah, I'm, I'm just very fascinated by everything and... I was curious. I know we've talked a lot about female impersonation. Have there been any folks in history through the decades that we've talked about so far that have popped up that have been doing male impersonation? And if so, was it for uh, performance purposes? or Because I think about the times I've heard about male impersonation, and it's been more to, like, do things for the family or provide, you know. So in that context, as opposed to... Uh, a way that is setting a performance for some wealthy elite segment of the population to consume. There were definitely male impersonators on the vaudeville stage, and you find ads for them um, 
frequently. I don't know that it, they were quite popular as well, but there's just not as much written about them or I haven't uncovered yet the stories because sometimes lesbian lives are much harder to get at. They were often more private. So we don't have as many clues yet. Do you think that has to do with the amount of privilege it comes with to be a man in our society even still? That they felt like it was easier for them to impersonate, quote-unquote, for performance reasons than it would be for a woman to do that and be accepted? It's possible. It's possible. Fair. Um, Plus the culture of female friendship, you know. Yes. That goes way back. Yes. But within the the public realm, we we do see that. It does not, as, as far as the evidence I've uncovered, has not drawn as much attention. And I'm sure there are a lot of different reasons for that. Uh, within archives themselves, we are working, and, and this is across um, North American archives. I was part of a group during the height of the pandemic of uh, queer archivists, museums, librarians, um, and we would talk about you know our collections and how we're trying to become more diverse because often the collections that we had were most representative of gay white males. And so there is an active movement to collect um, queer archives for people of color and women and lesbians and trans individuals and document and preserve these this multitude of histories all across the queer spectrum. So it's very much an intentional movement to make sure that we can really invite everyone in and to have people see themselves represented. So we still have so much work to do. Yeah. But that's wonderful that that is, that is work that y'all are doing. Definitely. Um, actually, uh, on a related note, I know that the American Library Association, uh, the Rainbow Roundtable, has uh, an ad hoc committee that they've formed. Um, I, they're working to be made an actual committee. But they're taking oral histories from uh, queer authors, um, personal oral histories of queer authors and also queer librarians in the profession to try and preserve that aspect uh, of, of, of the ALA Association. And so I think it's wonderful that all these steps are being taken to find and, and finally document this history that has been hidden for so long um, that hasn't really been fully explored um, one of one of my favorite podcasts is uh, Making Gay History. Um, I love I love listening to the interviews and and actually one of the things that surprised me so much about he- hearing these interviews wasn't wasn't the struggle. I mean, there was plenty of that. It wasn't the struggle. I thought it'd be all about you know that of of family, you know, family fighting, but it wasn't that so much. What what struck me is 
one of the biggest common threads is at first, a lot of these people thought they were alone. They thought they were alone. They they didn't think there were other people like them. They thought, or maybe they thought this was like something weird and new. There was this no connection. And so hearing about this history finally being written about and discovered, it it's, it's wonderful because it gives a sense of continuity. Um, that not only are you not alone, this has been happening like forever. This <laughs> <laughs> is not new. <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. It yeah. definitely goes back to the teens and, you know, Every new generation, I feel, still goes through that same cycle as we still work on making things more visible and making things more uh, accessible for the next generation. Uh, It's definitely way better than it's ever been, but there's a lot of work left to do. I agree on that. I will share with you a brief story about students reacting to queer materials. Several years ago, I went into an LGBTQ studies class, and we bring actual archival materials in. So we want the students to have the experience of working with primary sources. And we split them up into little groups. And all of a sudden from one group, I just heard this gasp and they were laughing. And I walked over and said, what What have you found? And they said, we didn't realize that Ellen wasn't always out. They were- <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. They had come across a publication from the 90s that chronicles her coming out. Wow. And this was an epiphany for them. They had no idea. We also had students who could handle uh, T-shirts from clubs from the 70s that were saved and are in the archives. And, you know, how getting that close and intimate with someone who was part of the struggle of making their lives better, really resonates. We do have, I personally, love going out and speaking to groups of of teens, working with Fiesta youth, and just spreading the world to help make their life maybe a little bit easier. Yeah, I think it definitely provides a sense of validation, even if they are alone, if they're not in homes that are supportive, or um, just to have that that source of knowledge that it has been around forever, whether it's been in secrecy or not, um, can validate that their experience is very real and not not only theirs to carry. Definitely. Uh, so I have a question. What can we do to make this history more available to the, the teens and anyone out there who who's lost or unsure that, like you said, they feel alone because they've never experienced it before. It's their own struggle. It's unique to them, but it's not. It's been throughout the ages it's been going on. So what can we do, what material can provide to help them along with this with this journey for them? Definitely podcasts like this. Um, reaching teens through social media, reaching anyone through social media, although there's so much, so much content out there, providing reading lists. There's more and more being written about queer histories, Southern queer histories. I'm working on the book version, and mm-hmm. eventually it'll come out in the interim. Um, I blog about it. I'm working on a very large um, grant project uh, called the Seed of Texas, where in this section we're mapping out, uh, in my section, queer sites, and that will be wide, widely available 
giving them the resources that are out there. There really is a lot. I know there's a lot more material being written for uh, younger members of our community, uh, reaching out to groups like Fiesta Youth and others and letting them know that they have resources. And on the flip side, what can we do to enlighten people who aren't aware of the community, who may not be a part of the queer community, but to be, I hate to use the word tolerance, I like acceptance. Acceptance is what I prefer, but we need to move past tolerance to acceptance. What can we do to educate them to accept these people as they are and not try to just tolerate their behavior thinking it's, it's not right? Well, <laughs> yeah. it's a short question. podcast. We've already had Again, I think this, this Bear County project that we're working on, uh, which is a collaboration of many, many scholars, and fortunately I've been asked to handle the, the queer narratives, uh, the LGBTQ narratives. These are, this is a platform that draws a really broad audience, and probably folks who are maybe you know, a little more conservative, maybe just tolerant, but perhaps through these narratives they're going to gain a wider sense of how this goes back through history and how it's not um, its not scary and it's not threatening. It's just history. And oftentimes, like the womanless wedding, it's really fun. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, uh, Edward, I, I also think it would be remiss if we didn't point out how big of an impact libraries have in this movement and momentum to have a more inclusive an accepting world and city. Um, Historically, if we're looking at queer materials, whether that is materials that just have some topic of queerness in them, whether it's a relationship or, you know, anything where it's representing some type of queer relationship, uh, those those pieces of information, whether they're books or periodicals, have been hidden. Um, They have... There's been a, a guise of a shortage of funding to purchase them. Um, so, and I even read about several libraries keeping these materials locked behind glass doors or in areas that are hard to access uh, under the assumption that they would, as the libraries presented it, would get stolen. Um, but nothing else was, you know, locked behind a lock for quote-unquote safekeeping. Um, So I think that a library has a duty to its community to not stray away from purchasing materials for all all age levels that represent inclusiveness, whether that's about gender identity, sexuality. You know, uh, I think that not straying away from programming and providing resources to community members that may need them is really important. Uh, and I know that not everyone in our community is accepting. That is the same for all communities, but not straying away from those things just because there are voices that are not happy with what the library or libraries in general may be doing for these communities. Right. And I know, Michael, you have a lot of programs towards the, the queer nation. Can you share some of those with us? Sure. Um, so I am actually part of the of SAPL's uh, queer committee. Uh, we formed um, shortly before the pandemic, uh, 
I feel like that's how every sentence begins now. Before the pandemic. Um, <laughs> In the before times. But uh, the idea was to increase queer programming beyond Pride Month. And so uh, we've done uh, several different types of programs. We had uh, a um, makeup as a form of gender expression. Um, we had several makeup, San Antonio local makeup artists, uh, talk about uh, using um, makeup as a way to play with gender expression, as I said. Um, we actually recorded those um, on our uh, queer lib guide. Uh, you can find the videos there. Uh, we have uh, a regular Saturday program called Queer Crafternoon. It's a Zoom program. Um, you register, you get the link. And what it is, is it's just an hour on Saturday from 2 to 3, uh, where we all congregate in a Zoom room to work on, doesn't even have to be a craft, just something to like bring you peace, get your creativity flowing. And we play uh, podcasts or audiobooks that either have queer characters or queer-centered storylines. Uh, sometimes we'll chat a bit with each other in the Zoom chat. Um, I know we also have uh, a Rainbow Families story time and uh, uh, activity program on the first Wednesday of every month. And then one that we are also trying to offer uh, semi-regularly is a... Uh, uh, program for transgender individuals um, about what you need to legally change your name and gender marker in Texas. And uh, in the meantime, we still try to put out resources. As I said, we have the uh, Queer Lib Guide. Uh, Some of my colleagues here at Central put together a um, mini-zine on trans community resources with the help of Pride Center San Antonio, who's one of our partners uh, we've done a lot of work with. Um, so we're really trying to increase that connection um, because part of it isn't just the resources. It is also making us a safe space, right. which is a lot different from a neutral space. Like if we want the queer community to see us as a resource, to come in and use the libraries, they have to know it's more than just they are welcome. They have to know if they are here, they are protected. And I feel we do have, as a profession, um, a strong obligation for this, not just because of the nature of our work, providing information, but because historically we do have strong ties to the queer community. Um, We were the first professional organization, the ALA, American Library Association, was the first professional organization in the U.S. to advocate for gay rights. They formed the uh, Task Force on Gay Liberation, which became the uh, LGBT Roundtable, which got renamed to the Rainbow Roundtable. Uh, And in fact, uh, Barbara Giddings, who was uh, a very prominent uh, lesbian activist um, was part of the Daughters of Belitis created a gay bibliography um, in the 1970s which had about several articles and about 20 books which was more than I thought would have existed for us in 1970s that kind of had a positive take on homosexuality because as she said that was where she looked first it was the library and in fact in the ALA conference in 1971 they had a hug a homosexual booth. Um, I'm not sure that anyone was brave enough to actually use it, but... It was there. It was there. 
Um, and oftentimes we are going to be the first place people look. Um, if you, uh, one of, one of my, I love the, uh, graphic novel, Fun Home, Alison Bechtel's memoir. And that was the first place she looked when she finally realized she was a lesbian. She was like, I went and I looked in the card catalog and realized I could look up homosexuality in the card catalog. And so I, obviously we are a wide profession. We have a lot of people and opinions are going to vary. Uh, Attitudes are going to vary across people and communities. But as a profession, I believe it is not just our job to have these resources. It is our job to help. The sheer number of queer narratives that have started at the library are fascinating. As more and more we see these autobiographical uh, graphic novels and books come out and they talk about going to the library. And this is across so many generations. So, yeah, historically, the library has been a place for queer discovery. And we really need to honor that and, and keep pushing forward with, yes, not just acceptance, but support. Also, there's there's a lot of queer librarians, like yeah, like a lot of queer librarians and archivists. <laughs> yes. oh, it's so true, and archivists, yes, yeah. very much. Like the, as a as a profession, like going to the UT School of Information, it was just like, oh, yeah. yeah, one of the <laughs> one of the running jokes, which is not, I didn't, it's not the most correct joke, but it was just like seventy five percent of the students are women. 85% of the students date men. Um, <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and it was honestly a wonderful a wonderful space um as as a queer person and even even growing up um I I wasn't out didn't come out till after I graduated high school. Um but even growing up the library was my safe space. Like was always a safe space to me. And I think one of the biggest things about queer discovery in the library isn't just having the information like, oh, I can I can look it up. It's especially for certain aspects of of the queer spectrum and where you can fall anywhere. And it can change over time. Just knowing you're different and then being able to read something and then suddenly be like, like seeing yourself for the first time and be like, Oh, the puzzle pieces like, all. This is all suddenly coming together. Um, and just being able to provide the place to figure that out. And then the archives, knowing that there is documentation. Like, this isn't just a story someone made up. This exists. Yes, <laughs> it's been a thing. That's actually something I've been thinking about is Texas has such a strong culture of history. That's, you know, everyone who grew up in Texas, it's all about, I know my family from three generations back. I know the history of the city I grew up in. That culture of history is so strong that, yes, of course, there's got to be a queer history of Texas. There's, It's there. We just have to find it and get it out. And I think... The Texas history buffs will definitely fall into that as well. Many will, at least. Not everybody, of course. But I think as we get more of that out, we'll see more and more queer Texas history buffs. And that will be fantastic. 
We're working on it <laughs> really hard. I look I, forward to that book. I do want to interject just one quick thing oh, sure. about the libraries being the place where queer people could go. In 1976, Jonathan Ned Katz, who has, is like the premier scholar, early scholar of gay history, published Gay American History. When I was working on my master's thesis, I was very interested to know how that was received. I was able to find little snippets in rural newspapers about librarians ordering his book and getting it into their libraries. So they'd put a list, publish a list of, this is what came into our library this week, and there was gay American history. I thought, we're everywhere. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh. We're everywhere. <laughs> so, Melissa, what can you give our listeners? What resources can they get to? Uh, can they find more about this through UTSA? Or what resource would you give to them to find more information about Texas queer history? Oh, there are a lot of different sources. I am happy to give my work email. Anyone can contact me. Okay. And I'm really great about returning email requests, like within a day or two. Okay. I'll count. It is melissa.golke, that's G-O-H-L-K-E, at utsa.edu. I work in UTSA Special Collections. You can also go to our website that has a tab on our homepage for LGBTQ communities, and it lists all of our collections that we currently have. Okay. And also, we will attach to the LibGuide you have pictures and more articles we'll attach it to live guide when this podcast is released absolutely okay before we go we didn't like to think about let's add anything this has been a wonderful very enlightening i've learned a lot a lot a lot been a lot of fun yes it has been and i'm just i appreciate your time michael daiquiri shannon i appreciate your input on this it's been a wonderful conversation i hope our listeners will appreciate it as much as i have thank you all yeah it's been great thank, thank you so much Hey, thanks for listening. And get connected on mysapple.org with Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Snapchat, Pinterest, Flickr, Instagram, and follow tuned in on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play Music.